Another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Hot Springs Village, Arkansas, today with episode 721 of the Survival Podcast. It is August the 10th, 2011. It is a Tuesday, and today we have a really cool show. Um, I have mentioned that we have had multiple financial defaults by the United States government just in you know, the period from 1900 uh, up through 2000, up until today, that we've had multiple defaults. Uh, people didn't even really notice that they were defaults. Actually, people freaked the hell out when they went on, and uh, but then soon just went back to life as normal. And that when we've had financial collapses in this country, financial defaults in this country, um, things changed, people got screwed over, but everybody eventually put things back together and went on with a new system. And because of that, I believe, when we have the, the future default, which will be much worse, I'll grant you that, will be much worse than the prior defaults, but when we do, it's not Armageddon, it might be financial Armageddon, it's not an Armageddon, it is an opportunity for those who are aware to be prepared for it and to come out the other side better instead of worse. I've been asked to go into that by quite a few members of the audience to the individual defaults, and I understand them at the top level, but I'm not a student of them the way that our guest is today. Tom Coitz, who is uh, better known as Baldy on the Baldy and the Blonde Show on WGSO 990 AM, is here with me today. I'll have him on in just a minute as soon as we get through our housekeeping. But this is his thing. This is what brought him from just a normal guy doing a normal job to becoming a guy that's on the radio and fighting for individual American freedoms, liberty, and justice. Right? That's what made it work. That's what did it for him. That's what made him look at his kids and go, I have to do something. I can't stand on the sidelines. So because that's his passion, and I brought him on to talk about before I bring him on, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today is Ready-Made Resources. Now, what more can you ask for from a company than for them to say, you know what, here's the name of our company. It's what we do, and it's what we do for you. We have all the resources you need ready-made, ready to go for your prepping. All you got to do is go by ReadyMadeResources.com, click on them, and those resources will be delivered to you so you can put them into your prepping plan. Ready-Made Resources has everything you could possibly need for your prepping, from defensive products to... To, uh, things for your garden, long-term food storage, to 12-volt products, to solar, to wind, you name it. If you can think about it, if we talk about it, if people want it uh, to make them more self-sufficient, independent, and better, more resilient uh, to stand stand in the face of an emergency or a disaster, you will find it at Ready-Made Resources with great service to back up great product and great price. Again, ReadyMadeResources.com. Uh, and the best way always to find and make sure you're dealing with our sponsors, though, is go to the SurvivalPodcast.com and click on their banners in the right-hand margin. That will make sure that you're dealing with the actual company, not somebody whose domain name is similar. But again, their domain name, pretty easy to remember, readymaderesources.com. Next up today, uh, sponsor of the day number two, we have Bulk Ammo. You know, I love Bulk Ammo because... I believe that there's you know precious metal out there that we should have in our portfolio, and those include uh, silver and gold. I also believe it includes copper jacketed lead. I realize that I have all these great guns, but without ammunition and sufficient ammunition to keep them running, um, they are nothing but really expensive, cool-looking clubs. With ammunition, they're actually a gun. 
So it's important to have ammunition at all times. It's also important that in certain calibers and in certain uh, rifles and handguns for certain functions that we have more than most people think you need. Uh, I don't know if you've ever spent a day shooting your AR at the range, but burning up a thousand rounds is easy to do, and it can get expensive. So what I like to do is make sure that I have certain weapons that I have higher than, I guess most people would call normal amounts of ammunition for them. The best place to get that that I've found price-wise and service-wise is BulkAmmo.com. They also ship like lightning fast. I've ordered, you know, a thousand rounds of uh, 5.56mm, 223, however you want to call it, and uh, basically got a shipping confirmation at the end of that day and had to show up at my door two days later with normal shipping. I just don't get that kind of service anywhere else. So, so check out BulkAmmo.com. I was really excited to bring them on as a, as a sponsor because of the great service that I'd already had with them. Uh, next up, remember, you can connect with me on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. You'll find all the ways to do that at thesurvivalpodcast.com. You'll also find our forum there. Make sure you get involved with our forum. Lots of folks that want to hook up with you, talk to you, and share information with you, and uh, build that greater community. So check out our forum. Remember to check out our gear shop. We have some new cool stuff there, like emberlet stoves. We have some geocaching coins. Uh, those are really cool. We have some uh, dog tag uh, bottle openers. Some lot, Just lots of cool stuff. Browse around. See if there's anything that uh, you'd like to have with the Survival Podcast brand on it, especially our new and improved French press mugs. You know, if you want to make coffee in a disaster, if you can keep your water up, these will make coffee for you. And the, the new models are a big improvement over the old ones. I need to get a, uh, a video out for you guys on that and some other stuff that recently came in the store. Uh, last but not least, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. If you do that, you get exclusive content available only to member. And you support the show at whopping 20 cents an episode. Uh, you also get discounts to over 29 vendors. It's a membership that will pay for itself. I guarantee you that if you're buying stuff in the survival preparedness homesteading niche, this will pay itself back. That's how I set it up. Further, if you are a law enforcement officer, member of the Peace Corps, or member of our military, either prior service or active duty, you qualify for a national service discount. So before you join, email me at jackofthesurvivalpodcast.com. Tell me your, you know, where you were, uh, what you did, a little bit about your history so I know that you're legitimately you know, who you say you are. And I will uh, send you the discount code. And with that, we've gone ahead and wrapped up the housekeeping, and I'm ready to bring our special guest on the line. All right, folks, as I said during the introduction segment, we're fortunate to have back one of uh, one of my favorite guests to talk to. Uh, half of the team of Baldy and the Blonde today, we have Baldy, a.k.a. Tom Coetz, who, uh, with his uh, cohort, Baldy, runs a uh, radio show on conventional radio, WGSO 990 AM in New Orleans on Wednesday evenings from 5 to 6. You'll want to check them out there. you want to check out their uh, website as well baldyandtheblonde.com, but I brought Tom back today because I've had a lot of questions when I've mentioned multiple defaults in the past and that if we default in the future, there's some things we can learn by looking at what we did with currency defaults in the past, and I think a lot of you guys are like, really, we defaulted, or you're asking me questions that maybe I have a hard time fully explaining, and this is Tom's baby. Tom got into kind of the activist side of radio and communications because of uh, the shenanigans that the Federal Reserve commits, the, the scam that it is. Uh, so I brought him on to have a conversation with me about this, and hopefully we can all learn something and be a little bit better prepared for what's coming. So, Tom, welcome back to the Survival Podcast. Oh, thank you, Jack. It's, uh, it's always a pleasure. I'm looking forward to a great interview. Thanks. Cool. So, um, I, you know, before we even get into the, the, the main subject that we talked about, I just want to maybe 
Let's chat a little bit about some things that have just kind of copacetically come up, I guess, that's not good for anybody except maybe for this interview. Um, we had this whole debt ceiling, uh, I called it political theater. You, you probably would concur with that. Uh, but the, the end result is they have this new deal, and they lifted the debt ceiling, and to me it doesn't look like they really did anything except waste our time for six months. Yeah, and I think we, that's, that's pretty obvious to everybody. Uh, I think that we're all stupid, and I guess a lot of the masses are. But, um, a lot of us are onto these guys, and they the, the problem was not the debt ceiling wasn't high enough, obviously. It was that the debt was too high, and they did nothing to address that. And uh, and so it's going to be, um, you know, more of the same, more inflation, more borrowing, more spending. Uh, it's obviously, too, that there was no cuts. They kept using the word cut, and we all know they didn't cut anything, except they reduced the amount that they that the CBO projected the budgets would be. Uh, but but that was, but those were all based on increases every year. So they just cut the amount they're going to increase. And even that, I, I don't believe they'll, they'll end up even cutting that when, when it's all said and done. No, they did as they need to. Because they'll just have a great big argument and political theater debate next about the next budget cycle, and they'll do whatever they want then. Um, and, of course, coming out of this, they cut our credit rating from AAA to AA+. I really, frankly, don't care. I'm not surprised by it, but I just I, I kind of see that as more political theater. Or do you think that there's, there's something more to that? I mean, I, I personally feel the dollar's doomed long term, but th- this change in the credit rating really seems to be pointless to me. Well... If anything, uh, it, it's, it's what we need. Yeah, I agree need, with that. Yeah, what we need is is less borrowing. And if, you have to understand too. We're no matter how this plays out, uh, we're in for a lot of pain. And um, uh, we, I'd rather bring it on sooner than later. So I, so I'm dealing with it, and not my daughter's generation. I completely so agree. I I completely agree with that. I was just saying, I, my my issue with this downgrade to double A plus is it just doesn't matter to me because I don't think we deserve that. I, I don't think our credit rating is, you know what I mean? <laughs> it should be lower, and it should have come sooner. But what, what I'm getting at is um, I say um, that it's better if the interest rates do go up, if that's the only way that these guys will finally stop borrowing so much money because they're not going to vote to borrow less money that's going to have to be forced on them. And if the only way to force it on them is higher interest rates, as painful as it's going to be, then fine. Because you know what? Um, people fear, oh, uh, uh, this whole system crashes and we end up with a, a new financial system. And, yeah, that is something to fear because it's going to be painful. But i got news for you. We need a new financial system. This one ain't working. Yeah, I think it's, it, I think it's kind of funny sometimes to me that the, people, the very people that lobby the most to uh, change it Fear the most the fact that it would actually fail, as they've been saying forever, and and asking for the change. My concern is that when they change it, uh, we'll all get the shaft again. Um, let's kind of talk about some of the ways we've we've gotten the shaft in the past. I don't want to go back really into the 1800s, but I do want to mention before we go through your timeline here in the 1900s that in the 1800s we moved both to and away from gold several times. And each time it was the people that got screwed um, by by manipulation of that currency. So I don't see that either way is is a, a fix by itself. There has to be some controls. But uh, coming up in a, you know the big uh, the year of hell for the United States, I think as you called it on your notes, 
and I consider it as like double hell because in 1913, we got two things at the same time, and they're the gifts that just keep on giving in a bad way. One was the uh, the income tax, and the other was the Federal Reserve Act, and I kind of think that the income tax was to pay for the Federal Reserve. Uh, but can you kind of just give people what actually happened in 1913? Well, it was at the very end. Um, of 1913 that they voted on um, the Federal Reserve Act. It was like December 23rd or something. So we all say that it started in 1913. Actually, it wasn't implemented until, I guess, 1914. Um, but it just, um, it was sold as a bill of goods and that, uh, that this would, um, this would finally centralize everything and protect the economy from, uh, these, these, uh, spikes, you know, these, these peaks and troughs. Um, and calm things down, and, and of course, it was never meant to be for that. It was just sold that way. It was just for centralization um, of the money power. And um, all you have to do is look at the scorecard to see over the last 98, 99 years that indeed um, it hasn't done us, the people on the street, any good. It's been harmful the whole way. When there was a depression in 1921, the depression through all of the 1930s and how many boom and bust cycles and deep recessions and now the one we're going through, uh, might be the worst of all. Um, and no one's holding the Fed to account. So what they did in 1913, they foisted on us a whole new system that was supposed to be, well, they were telling us it was supposed to be good for us. It's been, uh, nothing of the sort. And you don't get the, who did you vote for last time, uh, that they were, had an election for uh, the, the Fed governor and the Fed chair. You know what I mean? I didn't vote for anybody in the Fed. I mean, we we, we elect the president and the Congress, and they 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 set they set whoever they want there. And I I don't even think see people like Bernanke is really. I, I see them as like the front men for the people in the background that make the decisions anyway. Yeah, absolutely. My my point is though, you know, we have these guys in place that centrally plan this economy, and they sure don't plan it in our favor. But we have no say. We know what you know, it's uh, important democracy is, but we have no say in the people who uh, were making those decisions. And I guarantee you, we sure wouldn't be voting for the likes of the, these guys if we would wake up and, and see what the scorecard's telling us after only ten decades of history. You know, and I'll tell you what, it's... Uh... I don't think people really get the fact that these these guys kind of have a revolving door back and forth between serving on the Fed board and, and working for the Goldman Sachs and, and yeah, have this, this 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 entire thing set up where they can just skim money and every time these guys you know we call it printing money but today it's basically typing in dollar amounts into a computer. But when you put new money into a system, the only way that that money, if it's not backed by anything, gets value is to suck value from the money that's already there. And they just basically suck value out of the economy anytime they choose to turn the faucet on. And the higher you are in that elite layer, that banking layer, the more access and the cheaper access you have to money, and the lower you're down, the more you have to pay for your money. And the interest rate is not just what we pay for money because – the inflation air, the inflation curve is also a big part of our cost and what we pay for money, and I think that's why Ron Paul calls it the hidden tax. Yeah, well, and in fact, remember, even Bernanke himself, Ron Paul got him to admit it, um, that inflation is a tax. He just didn't take it a step further and say, um, who causes the inflation? 
they stopped the conversation there, but he did say that um, that inflation is a, it's a tax on the people, and it, it's the it's the ugliest and most insidious one of all because people don't understand it. Absolutely. And, um, but when you when you have a system in place where um, where somebody can just create money out of thin air, I mean, of course it's going to be abused. If you tomorrow could say, if if somebody gave you the power of money creation tomorrow, and you say, okay, well from now on, money's going to be jackknots. And I'm not going to release jack notes into the economy unless somebody borrows each and every one of them. Correct. Well, guess what? You control the world within, what, 48 hours? Absolutely. And I've also created a system then where uh, the whole world owes me and that every dollar or jack note or peso or whatever you want to call it is a certificate for debt. And they're, they're in effect, because of that, there is no money. There is only debt. And if everybody repaid their debt... There would be no money. We'd contract the currency down to nothing. And I, I've said that on the show many times, and I have people that severely doubt that. And, and I always try to point out that if you go to the Federal Reserve's website, they say that themselves. They don't hide this. It's not hidden. Yes, but get this. It's even worse than that. Not only can you not pay off all that because money would go to zero, the problem is you can't even pay it down the debt. That is more than about 2%. Because just a contraction, a small contraction of the money supply, we, we saw what happened in the last couple of years. Correct. And the money supply stagnated or contracted a little. It's Armageddon. Yep. And so to try to pay down the debt just a couple percent, um, you can't do it. And, and notice that we never have. Well, and make that, up all the, you know, that's the, the big the, thing. And I've had one, one challenge to that when I've talked about this before. And that was during the Eisenhower administration that there was a significant dip in the debt. And my counter to that is if you look at the public debt and the, the, the private consumer debt at that time period, all we did was transfer the government's debt to the people and then both of them started going up again at the same time. So that's when all the, you know, all the GIs came back and everybody got a credit card and everybody got easy loans and that debt never really went away. It just moved from the public sector to the private sector. And again, then both of them just started growing and, and you know, it was just a, it was a transfer of, uh, of burden. Right, and it, it always has to grow because remember when they when they create new money with new debt, they only create enough money to pay back the principal, not the interest. So the interest has to be paid with newly created money. So that's why the money supply always has to be growing. But if once you realize that money and debt are synonymous, they're the exact same thing. That means you're saying that the debt supply always has to be growing. And again, that's why I say I welcome a new system. But but we have to educate ourselves, um, or we're going to end up completely getting screwed because we've had m- several new financial systems in the 20th century alone, and but they've been largely invisible to the people. But with e- each and every one of the new systems that comes along, and we'll talk about them, is the people have got the shaft, as you put it. Correct. If we educate ourselves, then we sh- to, to know what what's a dangerous system and what's a stable system. And we, we can shoot for a stable system. I'm all for it. I'm all for a one world government if it's, if it's for, um, based on freedom of the people, you know, personal liberties. I'm for a one world currency if it's gold. Yeah. You know, I don't care. As well, but, but if they're going to put a one world government on us that's tyrannical and they're going to put a one world currency on us that's fiat, forget about it. So we have to educate ourselves and know what's stable and good for us and know what's dangerous for us. 
Yeah, yeah. And I know people out there are having a heart attack when you said one world government there, and I, I, I don't want them to take that the wrong way. I think you're just trying to make a point there. Well, I was just making a point that if, it, if it's truly based on freedom of the individual, I don't care who my government is because I don't even have one. Correct. Correct. So if it was actually a government that looked like our founders originally intended, I just don't think it's possible at a global level because the bigger government gets, the more tyrannical it becomes. Oh, no, you're right. I was, I was saying that just to, just to make a point. Yeah, I yeah. wasn't actually advocating yeah. it. Right. <laughs> I just want to click because I know I'm going to get comments if we don't clear that up. So let's talk about how great a job the Federal Reserve did. So they came in in 1913. Like you said, they really didn't get on the job until 1914. Let's just say 1913 because it makes the numbers nice and easy and rounded off. Um, most people know about the Great Depression in 1929, but very few people know that it took them a whopping, what, six years to be in the middle of the mired in the 1919 uh, severe depression that the United States went in and recovered through that. But t- within 20 years, they managed to screw things up so bad that a country that had backed its dollar with gold uh, and had a $20 uh, gold piece be an ounce of gold, and it was that way for, for, for a long, long time, all of a sudden... They had to, like, basically say the $20 bill and gold were no longer linked to each other, and then they took away everybody's gold, right? Well, yeah, that's how the people really got screwed. They got, they, they got um, fear-mongered into turning in their gold for paper. And um, I, I don't, I've never really talked to any old-timers about that, but I suspect that... Um, but they were sold a bill of goods, and it was they were uh, they were all patriotic and and thought it was the thing to do because of course it was done under the Trading with the Enemies Act, and uh, meaning that all of I guess all of the American people became technically enemies of the state because that that's what FDR um, cited was the Trading with the Enemies Act, and everybody had to sell their gold to the Federal Reserve, and then within a couple of days they jacked up the price and said well now we're going to sell the gold to foreigners for like thirty five dollars an ounce or something. Was it really, to me, they didn't even jack the price up. That was the price. The gold was worth about $32 to $34 an ounce comparatively in the, the relative currency strength of the U.S. dollar against foreign government money. The government takes the gold with the lock at 20 pays the people 20 in paper, and then just allows the market price to reset and then just dumps it and, and just basically yeah. screws people for every $20 Everybody lost about thirteen to fourteen bucks of their wealth, and you got to think about the time this was, folks. You could actually go out and buy some stuff with thirteen to fourteen dollars um, in, in nineteen thirty-three. You know, we could buy gas then for a quarter, and we still can today for a quarter, but it's the right kind of quarter. We'll get that in a bit, but I don't think people really understand that that was that was basically a government default. The government just said we can no longer back the currency with gold, and just said no way, we're not going to do it anymore. Well, and I'm glad you said that because that is it's exactly a government default. Because here the, the media is telling us, oh, we just avoided the first ever uh, default by the federal government. First of all, we didn't avoid it. All they did was disguise it because we're in the middle of a default uh, or, or mostly postponed it. But it wasn't even the first one. It was about, I, I haven't really counted them up, but it said we had three or four. And that was, that was the first blatant one. That um, they just said, well, you know what? I, I know that uh, you can have gold um, or dollars e- equally exchangeable here before, but not anymore. Send us your gold, and you get to have this lovely paper. That's absolutely a default because that's an admission by the federal government that they just uh, no longer have enough gold to meet their demands. Because they also remember 
they abrogated the gold clauses in their own bond contract. If, if that's not an outright default, I don't know what is. I completely agree, and that's, that's that's really what it was. It was we'll just we can't pay the bills, so we'll just change the the method by which the bills are paid, and and then we you know we ended up in the middle of a world war. Uh, we fought that war, and uh, we came away known as the world leader in all possible ways by the rest of the world. And uh, the gold was still in some way connected to the currency. We just changed the relationship of it. And then the United States decided to go out and sell the entire world a bill of goods, right? And that's, you know, these two words that people remember from school, but they can't quite remember what they were, Bretton Woods. Let's talk about that a bit. Well, that was, it was a conference started in 44 and I think finalized in 45. And essentially what that did was it, uh, it made uh, uh, the dollar, the world's reserve currency, and also established that the dollar and only the dollar could, was convertible into gold. And kind of the precursor to the petrodollar. In other words, if you today, if you want oil, you better have a dollar, right? That's the only reason, really, that the world will take dollars. Back then, um, the, if you're going to have a, a reserve currency for the world, and it's going to be a, a, from a, one particular nation, then that nation's got to print up a whole lot of dollars and export them, a whole lot. Well, how do you get them to do that? Well, you you make the rest of the world... Um, a system is set up such that they can't even get their hands on gold unless they have those dollars. And notice that after, in the few years after World War II, what do we have? $13 billion of, uh, of dollars exported from here um, overseas. And then the Marshall Plan shortly after that, another $12 billion, like $25 billion over the course of just a few years. And it was sold to the people as uh, rebuilding their countries or, uh, you know, after the war or whatever. Really, all it was doing was um, uh, we're just creating lots of dollars here, exporting them. And remember, the people that create that money, uh, they get to collect interest, right? They get to collect interest on something they just created, which is, when it gets down to it, that's an infinite interest rate. Because what's, what's the interest rate on zero? Because they got zero, they just created it out of thin air. They're getting an infinite interest rate, trillions, billions of dollars, exporting that, so... They love the system because they're getting plenty rich. Foreigners love the system. They're getting all this aid. We know what the American people got. It's just that they didn't recognize they're getting screwed at the time. Yeah, and what they basically did is they said, okay, if you want to buy gold and, and quite a few other things in the world, and it's still that way today, and some nations are starting to break that, that covenant, so to speak, and, and they really need to be doing it. I'd, I'd be doing it for myself as well. But people in the United States in 1945, if you or I, Tom, had been around back then and we said, you know what, I like to diversify my wealth and I'd like to go out and I'd like to buy myself 20 ounces of gold and put it away, we couldn't do it. But other nations, people could, and they had to use our money to buy their gold. Well, I believe it was foreign central banks only. It wasn't okay. individual. Okay. Okay. But, um, but, but they wanted gold. Sure they did. So they had, to, they had to have dollars, and so you had this system set up just like the petrodollar today, where we were they, they exported the inflation of the United States. They sent it out overseas. We didn't feel the inflation in, in the terms of, of, of prices here at home because the money had been exported. But the people creating that money sure got rich because remember they're collecting interest. Because money doesn't get released into the economy unless it's borrowed, because money is debt. And I know. A lot of people, they have trouble uh, making that connection, but it's absolutely true. They don't just make money and then, like, give it to anybody, do they? No, they make money and they lend it out. They create it out of thin air. They collect that interest. And so they, they love these systems where they 
they tell these foreigners, okay, you can um, you can buy gold. Sure, you can buy gold, but you can have to have dollars, and we'll be happy to uh, lend them to the United States government, and then the, the, what they're going to do is they're going to ship it off to you, and we're going to call it foreign aid, or we're going to call it reparations, or we're going to call it uh, build, rebuilding a country or whatever. Uh, but the bottom line is that those, the central bankers get unbelievably wealthy, and the American people get unbelievably screwed. So, and, and I look at that 1945, and I think you do as well. It was a change in the currency, the status, but it wasn't really a default. It was a pilfering of the the new currency created in in 33, and uh, and that established that that dollar as the world reserve. Before we get onto the coinage act of 65, I think I want maybe get your thoughts on this. Uh, because I think we are in danger of losing that reserve currency status. And the way we just described it, it sounds like a very, very bad thing. But in today's world, it gives us a, a major advantage in, in the world in, in trade. Because if you want to make an analogy for this, this is how I would put it. If, if we went to a barter system and we decided that the reserve barter commodity in the United States was going to be the orange, right? And that would mean that immediately California and Florida would have a tremendous advantage over the rest of the states because they're the two largest producers of oranges. So if Maine wanted to barter with with, with Washington lobsters for uh, uh, apples, for instance, because they're both known for that, they would have to do an exchange first into oranges and then use the oranges, and, and on the other side, the same way, Washington would have to convert the apples into oranges, and then the oranges would go here, and the apples would go there, and we sit in the middle, and as long as we're California or Florida, we have this tremendous advantage because we don't have to convert first. But if if we lose that reserve status, that ceases to be the case, and we end up being like the rest of the world, and somebody or somebody else gets that new status. Well, here, here is the problem. When you are, um, when you're the one with that status and you're riding fat and happy for a long time and you're king of the hill, that's all great. But when the day comes that you do lose that status and, um, and it's hard for any one particular nation to, um, to be the world's reserve currency because it's hard to have, how do you produce, produce enough dollars for the whole world to use? You can, for a while, again, because you you, um, you make them have dollars if they want to get gold, or you make them have dollars if they want to get oil. But um, at some point, that is a house of cards, and it will fall down. And what happens is when when all those dollars that have been exported, because remember the Fed just in the in the last few years, uh, it just came out that they um, they printed sixteen trillion dollars, right? And they used it to bail out a lot of foreign banks and corporations. Well, and now those dollars are offshore, just like all the petrodollars are offshore. But when the when when we're no longer the world's reserve currency, you know this big advantage that we can have, and sure it's great. But when those dollars find their way home and come to come back to our shores, there's your twenty, thirty, forty dollar gallon of gas. Yeah, there's your immediate uh, devaluation by a minimum of fifty percent of the of the relative currency strength domestically as well. Um, I want to put it this way, too, and I want to hear what you think about this. Um, you know, we all remember the sitcoms from the 70s and 80s, and there was usually, you know, in any one of them, sooner or later, there would be a bullying episode where, you know, one kid was bullying the other, and he kind of flashed forward in time, and the one kid remembers the other kid as a, as a big kid, but now one grew faster than the other, and the, the, the prior served, you know, the prior picked on is now the one that's stronger, and they're generally not real nice to the, the prior bully. And I think when we lose that, that's kind of like a simple lesson for us to realize that there's a lot of nations out there that we've been able to manipulate with this, 
And when we no longer have that power, they're not necessarily real happy with us. And I'm, I'm not talking about you know, flat-out uh, aggression, but, you know, it's just what's good for the goose is good for the gander type of thing. Well, and, and you're right, because, you know, China has taken how many years with the turn of uh, producing uh, very cheap goods with very cheap labor? And uh, they're not going to always want to be doing that, right? So you think they're going to care when it's our turn? They're going to welcome that. And yeah, so, yeah. I, I kind of look at China, and I feel like they're turning Africa into what we we made China. Like they need a place for for their cheap resources and cheap labor, and somewhere to offsource, you know, outsource their problems to, and and you know, be the developing hand within there, and 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 to extract from. And the last place in the world that's not really developed yet is is kind of Africa. And they're trying to become what we were, not government-wise, but strength-wise financially in the 1950s. No, I agree, but I'm afraid it won't just be Africa. Um, I'm not saying it'll play out this way, but I'm saying it's possible that it will, that, that we are at risk from being that source. You know, could be. Um, we're going to owe them so much, we can't pay them in money, as we mentioned. You can't pay the debt down. You can't do it. The, the debt supply combined with public and private, as you pointed out, always has to be growing because the money supply always has to be going and money and debt are the same thing. Well, we're not, we can't pay China back. They know that. Of course. So we're gonna, how are we going to pay it back? With, with labor? With, uh, with real estate? I don't know, but, uh, you know, they, you probably saw the story not so long ago. They're setting up uh, an economic zone. Um, just south of Boise, Idaho. It's the only one I heard of, but then I saw a report where there might be several dozen in the country. Are you familiar with this? Yeah, I'm very familiar with it. It's a real concern of mine because these are not, you know, we talk about an economic development zone and we think of something the size of maybe a downtown metro area, but these things that they're setting up uh, are self-sustaining communities that are that are designed in, in, in scope and in, uh, theory anyway to, to roughly cover about 50 miles square. Um, you're talking yeah. stuff like the King Ranch in Texas size stuff, um, which is actually, King Ranch is actually bigger, but I've been trying to get a people's head around that. 50 mile square area is, you know, an entire metro area and suburbs, and they're buying kind of these areas that aren't, aren't developed yet and saying, we'll bring in development, we'll bring in jobs, but what they're also saying is, we'll bring a lot of Chinese in with us and set up 50 mile square islands of China inside the United States. And since they run their monopoly money off of our monopoly money, they can print more, too, and come in and buy up cheap while we're in the middle of recession and our land is depressed and the city governments and the local county governments, are they're strapped for cash. They're screwed. They're, the, the municipal default, we'll, we'll probably save that for the end because I want to get through your timeline. I want to talk to you about that, too, because I think that's, the, that's where the tidal wave breaks on us. Um, but the, the, this is an answer, right? Here come the Chinese, and there'll be a tax base, and they'll buy this, and and they'll give us all these these, these Chinese dollars, and we'll turn them into American, and we'll fix everything. Um, and that that basically, when you are in a, a fire sale situation, the buyer is always predatory to me. Uh, no, I, I agree. Uh, but there's another part of that equation that I that also fear, and that is um, that we we ha- we're going to have massive homelessness. And you know, and, uh, and foreclosures here, and a lot of people hungry, and uh, they're going to be begging to go be. They won't call themselves this, but that's what they're going to be. They're going to be begging to go be slave laborers in those economic development zones. Like, like I say, China is infamous for having slave labor. Why right. wouldn't we have? That's my question. Because when I when I bring up things, I get people kind of look at me funny. But my question is, why wouldn't that happen? 
Well, I mean, and here's the thing. For years and years and years, we've said we want China to, uh, to, you know, play ball and be democratic and, and get into the, get out of communism, get into capitalism. Uh, to me, when I look at it, when they play the capitalist game, they're pretty good at it. And there's over, what, 1.7 billion of them. Um, and they've got, you know, they, they don't care what they have to do to their own people to get, get where they want to be. Uh, they'll make sacrifices our, our people will frankly not make anymore. We did do things like they're doing now. Uh, we had plenty of people die over here building canals and building the first highways and building dams. Uh, they're doing that right now. We look at it and say how terrible it is, but that's how this country developed as well. I mean, we, we go back before the automobile and, and, and heavy train infiltration. The, the Erie Canal system, you know, is what enabled the entire development of that area. They're doing those things now, and, you know, slave labor, or, or what, and we used slave labor here, we imported it. So I, I think what you're saying makes perfect sense. Yeah, and, and honestly, um, I, I really do fear that it's more likely than not. Because typically what happens in a, in a crisis is that the people who are the victims of the crisis are the ones that ask for the solution. It's not thrust on them. And and our overlords will say, hey, that's a good idea. Yeah, come on in. Wait, yeah, that's... What you need to do? You yeah, how do you make a person go into a jail cell? Uh, you know, make it really miserable outside the jail cell, and they'll run in there. Yeah, that's right. But, uh, you know, when you have people on the street hungry and, and they can't feed their families, but they realize, oh, you know, I could go in there and I could make widgets... To send back to China, now they're not going to pay me except a little bit, but I got three hundred in the car for me and all my family. What would you do? Yeah, yeah. You got to, you know, give people a choice between the streets and a warm bed. And even if the warm bed is is not a good bed, it's still a warm bed. Um, yeah, and and goes that. If that sounds drastic, yeah, it is drastic. But connect the dots because the dots are there. The massive debt is there. The massive future homelessness is definitely going to be there. The economic development zones are there. China's history of having slave labor is it's all there. It's, there's a precedent for all of it. Why would it not happen? I hope it doesn't, and it may not, but it certainly absolutely could. I, I would say that it will probably look different than it does in China. It will probably be put in a way that looks a little bit more palatable to the American mentality, yeah. but the result will be the same. Let's keep going on your timeline here. So I want to make sure we cover all this. That's what I promised, folks. So, 45, we get the Bretton Woods Agreement, the dollars of reserve currency, we're fat and happy, um, and we had really kind of pushed the gold into the background of things, And uh, but we still had this real money in our pockets that clanged around and made a different sound than it does today. It was made out of this stuff called silver. And, and that happened, that worked right up until 1965, and then the government basically couldn't afford the coins anymore, so they just changed the rules again. Yeah, and once again, the people got screwed. And they had a new system foisted on them. You know, you, you had a new system in 13, and then a new system in 33, a new system in 45, then a new system in 64 slash 65, but largely invisible to the people, right? Because things they still kind of looked and operated the same, yep. but it really was a whole new system. And what those systems have in common is that people get screwed more and more. And for a while, um, people, um, they trusted that the new money really was like the old money. You know, what's the difference? It's money. In fact, I can tell you this. I was paid well, I was born in um, 1960. And um, my parents um, paid for me in um, silver coins. 
think hmm. I, I, if I'm remembering the story correctly, it was like $300, and they paid for me all in silver coins. Wow. Now, um, that was right before the switchover, but I'm sure that when the switchover was made, that there were plenty of people, just, you know, just like, okay, here's a quarter. What, what's the difference? But it, it, uh, it didn't take so long, I imagine, for that bad money to drive out the good. In other words, people will, you realize pretty quickly, wait a second, um, this, what I'm holding is really worth something. I'm going to hold on to it. So that a lot of the silver coins did disappear, but, um, but there was plenty of people who were victimized and, um, spent their money trusting their government. And, um, and again, the, the, the story goes, the people get screwed. Yeah, and I, I, see, I see that as a default. At least a partial default. It only, you know, in paper and coin, it only affected the coin side. But when your government goes from um, your your quarter is is a, is a quarter of an ounce, roughly of ninety percent silver, uh, to your quarter is a, is you know briefly there was some forty percent coinage out there. Um, very quickly afterward, it, it's 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 you know copper and and some some nickel and some cladding. Um, one is worth actual real value, and the other one is actually worth not a damn thing. Um, that's a default. We can no longer make the money silver, so we'll make it copper and steel. Yeah, it, that's absolutely a default. And so, it, it, you know, we were hearing how that we just avoided our first ever default. That's that's ridiculous. But the reason they have to do that, they don't get. First of all, the dummies reporting it are so stupid they probably never even heard of half of this stuff. Um, <laughs> But, but even if they heard of it, um, there's no way that they would even be allowed to discuss it. You know, you think they're going to say, oh, Fred, what are you talking about? We've had many defaults in the past. And, you know, he'd be off the air real quick. If Mike had stopped working, he'd be fired. That'd be that. So that's what most people don't know about is, one, because it's been, each transition has been largely invisible. The dollar bills still look about the same. The, um, the, the coins look about the same. They're still spent because, remember, they passed these um, legal tender laws that, Forced us to take them. That's that's why you know. Um, that, that's why we keep exchanging because we have to. Um, but but most people they don't see the transition and they don't hear about the transition because the media and their and their the government and the banking system is sure isn't going to tell them. And so next thing you know, a few generations go by, and today's kids they have no reason to believe that um, it's a good idea to attach the dollars of silver or gold. And in fact, what are they told? That it's that it's bad. It could be a terrible idea. It would be a catastrophe. So it doesn't take very long, and not only is the real money gone, even the notion that we should have real money is gone. Yeah, and I, I want to make a point for people about how big a default this really is and how it tracks through time. It, it used to be kind of cool because it, it almost, for like 50 years, the numbers were almost the same. Now it's about double. Uh, but in 1933, when all of this stuff uh, happened with the, with the um, with gold confiscation, the silver was left in circulation. Though you would be able to go out with a one silver quarter and buy about one gallon of gasoline with it. Uh, and like I said, up until silver made a big bull run recently, all through the years, you go back to 1980, 1990, 2000, as gas moved up and down, which is one of our most volatile commodities that tracks against our dollar. It was at the point where if you had had 64 earlier quarter, the melt value of that quarter was almost identical to a gallon of gasoline. So basically the silver stayed in checked inflation 100% against our most you know usable and, and volatile commodity for 50 to 60 years. Well, uh, today though, 
if you go and you take a silver quarter and you say, what's the melt value in it? I'm on coinflation.com. Uh, it's $6.93. So now that quarter would buy you about two gallons, a little less than two gallons of gasoline based on a national average today. So that quarter has doubled its spending power, uh, and the government says that the one they gave you in 65 is just as good. That, that, I can't see how that's not a default. Well, no, it's absolutely a default. And, and um, I like the way you talk because, like me, you talk in the big picture with the broad brush strokes because you don't have to understand all the technical things behind the, the treasury options and the derivatives. I don't know about any of that stuff. I don't want to know about this stuff. But I know common sense. I know that when they say you can no longer um, exchange that paper for gold, and I know when they say, well, we're now the coins are going to be this junk instead of the silver, I, I know a default when I see one. It doesn't take a genius. I, I, know, I, I know when the people are getting screwed. I can see it. And, and I, I, know the, um, I, I, I also know that if we do not pass this on to future generations, they're going to be completely bamboozled and mystified. They're going to be taken in by the lies, you know, by the media, by the banking system, by the government. So it really is our job, everybody out there who's hearing this, you need to just learn the basics and pass those basics on to your kid. So let's talk about another, this is, I'm going to say, is also a full default to me. Uh, 1968, even after we got rid of the coins, even though you couldn't exchange your, your dollars for gold, um, we had our, our, you know, I remember having some of these as a kid. They're still in my strong box today because my, my grandmother said they're worth something as a collectible now. Uh, but they were called silver certificates, and you could get a dollar, and you could go get a dollar's worth of silver with a one dollar bill. And in 1968, they said what? They said no more. They just <laughs> just like they did with the, the with the gold. You know, again another default, but again also a largely hidden default. Almost nobody knew at the time that it was a default because um, it there. The money that was out there circulating, the dollars that were not silver certificates, they looked a lot like the silver certificates, right? And they just, like, like converting the junk coins, I mean, the, well, the good coins to the junk coins, they just converted the silver certificate and they made it and it converted into this thing that looked like one but wasn't convertible to anything. But life went on and nobody realized that once again they had been robbed blind. And to me, but, the, the, and to me, another. In, in just in just a few years after Bretton Woods, you're running into a few defaults. Correct, and to me, 68 was so much worse than 65. In 65, at least, I could go out and I could, you know, be the the implement of Gresham's law. I could go out and I could hoard the silver. Uh, I could go out and I could take as many much silver coin as I could get. In 1965, if I had realized what happened, I could go down to the bank with a great big stack of 20s and buy quarters and rolls, and most of them would have came back to me in silver. I could have bought 50-cent pieces. I could have bought dollars, dollar for dollar, quarter for quarter. In 68, they took the paper that was supposed to be redeemable for the silver, so if I hoarded that paper, I got nothing. So in 65, I could, I, I could work the system if I understood it, though very few people did. In 68, it was a lot more like 33. There's no way out of it. They weren't going to put me in jail this time because all they did was change what my paper was worth instead of take away my gold. But it's a flat-out full default. It is. But you know what? You said something very important, and I'm glad you did. You said that if you knew, if you understood the system, you could have worked the system. And that's my point. There is a new financial system coming upon us. Whether it's a new currency or um, 
uh, uh, just a flat-out devaluation where they t- chop two zeros off of this currency. Whatever's coming, it's coming. And we we have to understand it enough to know how to make the new system beneficial to us because that's our only hope. Because what's happened is with all these defaults and all these new systems, and, again, there's been several of them since 1913, um, there is another one coming, and uh, we have a chance, but only if we understand the evils of what they've been doing to us and understand the the, um, the importance of having real money with real intrinsic value. If we don't understand that, then we've really completely screwed the next generation. So that's why um, that's why it's, it, it, you don't when you when, I would just employ your listeners when you go to to read about this stuff. Don't worry about all the technical stuff. Who cares? If this system is so rotten and so fraudulent, once you see that, you have to keep studying to know that it's no good for us, and to see what we need to avoid the next time because there is a next time coming and soon. Yeah, I agree. And Moving on though, with with how things progressed, um, you know, you think maybe it'd be a long time from 1968 forward till there'd be some major currency change going on, but it took a year, and in 1969, uh, the International Monetary Fund created something called an SDR, which I would imagine that probably 98 percent of the people out there right now have no idea what an SDR is. So why don't you tell them? Well, that's that's stands for special drawing right. And the reason that they did that was because, and this is what I mentioned before, it's difficult to have a currency that works for the entire world when that currency originates from just one particular country. How does that one country produce enough dollars for the entire world? And that was becoming a problem um, in the late 60s. And so the IMF um, created the special drawing right, and um, they, they specifically... Um, set as their goal to make it the world's reserve currency. They did that a long time ago. It's nothing new because we've heard we've heard even Geithner talk about how the dollar might have to give up its status. We've heard Chinese officials say it, Russian officials say it all recently. But guess what? Forty years ago, they were already talking about it uh, because um, it again it all comes down to it's difficult for one country to supply the world. So yeah, they created this um, this special drawing right and. Um, uh, it's they, but they don't really use. It's not really a currency. It's like an. It's it's used only between uh, governments and central banks. Uh, it's not really a, a currency. But there has been talk um, of, of of recently been talk that it would become a currency. But again, that's it's just fiat based on nothing on vapor, and that's the importance of um, educating ourselves and future generations. Um, why we need to avoid this stuff? Anything that's fiat based on nothing, if it's paper, forget about it. No matter what they call it. Yeah, and of course, since the dollar was still coveted at this time, once these SDRs were issued uh, and people could basically create more of their own money by exchanging with other nations, they could then borrow more dollars, and that created a lot more dollars, which was the goal of this in the first place. These SDRs, like you said, they're not really a currency, they're like an illusion of a currency and designed to keep up the, the circulation of the dollar, the printing of the dollar. So... Even though we went off the the traditional gold standard in 1933, there was still a gold reserve requirement, I guess is the best way I can describe it, with the dollar, where you couldn't just print as many dollars as you want. There had to be a percentage of gold behind them. Uh, But when this thing took off and, and the inflation came and it wasn't really being done anymore, we had two whopping years from this change, and then 1971 comes in, 
That's the big that's year that what happens? That's when all hell broke loose. That um, because uh, particularly France uh, was saying they, they were saying uh, was something they didn't like with the dollar. So they were um, bringing in they're sending back a lot of dollars and exchanging for gold. Just like you talked about, like if if, if you were a kid in '65 and you knew what was coming up. You'd, you'd trade all that paper for uh, for silver. Well, that's what De Gaulle was doing. He said, you know what? I kind of like what I'm seeing. You can have your paper. I want the gold. Um, and uh, that caught on more and more and more. And all of a sudden, Nixon realized, we, we're screwed. It's not that we don't have enough gold. It's that there's too many dollars out there, right? So, we, so on August 15th, 1971, I think it was a Sunday evening, he goes on TV and he announced, no more. Now, the Bretton Woods Agreement, uh, remember, established that um, the dollar was the only um, currency that could be exchanged for gold. Uh, but he just went on TV and unilaterally declared, no more. Uh, we're no longer allowing foreign central banks to send us dollars and we send them gold. He just shut that window. But also, on that, on that day, he announced that, uh, he, that was when he announced his wage and price freezes. And that's what Americans are. They are that part. They're like, oh, great. Hey, I don't... And he fixed it. Just, he waved a wand and said, prices can't go up. So when when he opened his mouth that day, he said a horrible, horribly dangerous thing. And that is, um, or he really did a horribly dangerous thing, and that is that we don't, we can't, um, we can't send you this gold anymore. We're not enough gold. We're spending too many dollars. But people didn't hear the horribly dangerous thing. Here's the good thing. Oh, hey, look, he fixed the prices, honey. We don't have to worry about it anymore. Well, that only lasted a few days, and it all crashed and burned anyway. A- absolutely, but, um, absolutely. And I, I think the way people we need to un- real quick before you go on, I think people need to understand about that. In thirty three sixty eight sixty nine or thirty three sixty five sixty eight, the government defaulted. Period. But mostly defaulted to the people. Of our of yeah. her own nation in seventy one, the government, our government that has this triple A credit rating that's been down to double A plus, defaulted to the world. Told all the world that was holding these reserve gold dollars, hey, guess what? They're not reserve gold dollars anymore. We'll give you dollars for your dollars now. Yeah, it, well, and it was just a short time after that was they said the petrodollar, where you had to have dollars to buy oil. So what they once had for uh, for gold, now they had in place for oil. If there's one good thing that came out of August 15, 1971, was that's the day that Ron Paul has cited that when he saw Nixon give that talk on TV, he knew he had to go into politics. Because that's definitely a good thing. That, yeah, and, and um, he he's our only hope, and, and, or his message, he's our only hope. And um, the, I do believe that that's why um, he's largely, you know, by, by the... By the media and his own government, he's he's ignored and he's marginalized and he's scoffed at because they want the status quo. They need the status quo. The status quo is their is their power, uh, and he's um, he's got the right message. It's sound money. It's a simple message, and the reason that most people, I suppose, don't really understand that too, too, is it seems intimidating to learn about money, such a mysterious thing. It's not. It's a, it's a simple thing. Uh, and the other thing is, people think, well, what do you mean money? It's just money. I mean, I, I just go to the store. I, you know, I work and get my money. I go to the store. It's just money. They don't realize that what they're spending is is not truly money because it's not truly worth anything and that we've been truly screwed since 1913. 
And so I keep coming back to this. Is if we don't know the, um, the dangers of a fiat system and we accept another one, we are so completely screwed because every time we switch to a new system, and remember, we've had many since 1913, every time we switch to a new system, what it has in common is that we just get screwed more and more. And if, um, we need to be ashamed of ourselves if we allow that to happen to our kids' generation. Yeah, um, I actually think that we'll probably go to a gold system in the future, but I still think we're going to get screwed. Because what they'll do is they'll base the new dollar on gold, and the, you know, you'll still have, um, if you have $100,000 in the bank today, after this is done, you'll still have $100,000 in the bank tomorrow, but the dollar, you know, the gold price in dollars will go up to five grand or something like that, um, or maybe ten. And that just destroys our buying power in the world. It's a huge immediate inflationary spike that you don't see in the relative currency strength domestically, but eventually, since we're such an import economy, it'll come in really quick like a flood. And that, that leads me to a date you don't have on here, which I don't blame you for because it's not what I asked you for, but I think one of the most important dates out there to see what the effect of this is, like the delay effect and the, and the result, is 1975. In 1975, everybody looks at the gold window of 71, and a lot of times I'll mention 75, and people don't get why. 75 was when the American people were told, you want to buy gold? Go ahead. And look at what happened to the price of gold in 1975. Yeah, look at, look at by, the end of the, by the end of the 70s, it was, what, 850 or something? Correct. It was out of control. I mean, how, how can you do that in just a few short years? There's any, I mean, how do people not even, well, you never hear conversations about that. How can that be? Yeah. In other words, people take no, no interest in something like that because I guess they think money's for the economists and, and it's just too, too complicated for us mere mortals. But if we would just, and I'm glad you brought that up, if we just looked at that one example that in just a few short years, it shot up from what, like 35 to $850 an ounce? Excuse me? Yeah, I mean, honestly, because of the manipulation, if you look at the, the world price in dollars for gold in 1933 was about 33 bucks. It just worked out that way. By 1971, it was about 34, $35. And it moved around in and around that range. So it was relatively stable right up until 75 when people were now allowed in the mass market to spend dollars on gold. And to me, it didn't really change the price of gold. It showed the value. It was like, like a magician does a trick for you a hundred times and pulls a rabbit out of the hat. And this was, when the gold came back in, it was just like somebody reached under the table, pulled the, the, the hidden mirror out that looked like you could look through, and you see the rabbit going through the tube, and the reality was made evident to people. But most people just didn't care because they were in the middle of a massive recession. 1970 through the 19 early 80s, the whole damn decade was lost. And that, that was a big part of it, but people were more worried about you know, the talking head on TV, much like today, or how am I going to pay the bills this week? And the average person wasn't buying gold at the time. It was the affluent class that said, I better do this. And, of course, it went to 800 because there was an overreaction. But it never went anywhere near going back down to 35 bucks again. Uh, eventually, it leveled in the 300 200 to $300 range, and that, that showed that basically over these years where the wool was pulled over our eyes, your thirty-five dollar, uh, your three hundred dollars became worth thirty-five dollars in in reverse. It showed all the inflation. Well, now the only the only hope we have really is that this time be a, a little bit different. And I do agree that there's going to gold or whatever. Um, it's what I said early on in this conversation was that no matter what we do, we're we're in for some serious pain. 
No matter which way we out of this, there there is no way out without serious pain. But I do believe if we go to um, something um, that's gold backed or gold itself or just anything with intrinsic value, um, the difference is we need to make it serve as our money. Whereas in the seventies they made it legal to buy it, but it it's not it wasn't money. Um, and so yeah, if if we can somehow um, enter a system where gold is our money again, um, yeah, there's going to be hell to pay for the first, I don't know, few years of that, but there's going to be hell to pay no matter what. And then hopefully on the back end, um, we we hold on to that system. But, um, you know, we're up against some very powerful people with some very powerful interests. Again, it comes down to if you could create money out of thin air, and release it into the economy only if somebody agreed to borrow it and pay you interest, you would control everything really fast, and that is what we're up against. Yeah, I agree. My problem is I think that what they'll do, see, as long as you're setting the weights and measures against the paper that gets traded, you can still do anything you want. And and that's, I think, how this reverse place can get made. And, I mean, I tell people, make sure you have some gold and silver holdings. That's the only thing I know to do if that prediction comes true, because I, I can't see how you're not going to lose if you're holding paper or, frankly, anything denominated in U.S. dollars. If you're holding stock, if you're holding uh, bond, it doesn't matter. If it's a dollar-based asset, when the dollar collapses, the asset has to collapse, too. Even if, like in the past, you didn't see the collapse right away or you didn't feel the collapse right away, eventually when we pull the mirror away, and reality sets in, and we have an import-based economy, you're going to feel it. So do you have any other way? I mean, I'm with you on staying on top of this and trying to have some impact on it, but when the change comes, and I, I think it has to, what do you think people should be doing to protect themselves? Well, no, I agree. Um, anything paper, um, forget about it. I mean, we've seen that, like you mentioned, with the silver certificates, right? And and, and the goal when you couldn't get you couldn't get it with your paper anymore. Um they paper all of a sudden, literally overnight, can, they can just say, well, no, well, we're not taking that. Or, oh, oh, we forgot to say, we just chopped off two zeros. So, yes, get out of paper. Um, and I would I would think that the best way to go, now, I'm, I'm no expert on this, uh, but I just know the big picture. And the big picture is that you need to have something of intrinsic value, whether that thing is um, uh, long-term food, um, or a water filtration system, um, the ability to uh, grow food, including indoors, um, uh, dried uh, pasta, beans, or whatever that are going to last you 15, 20 years, um, um, knowledge of how to fix things, a good set of tools, you know, things that that um, in uh, previous generations you, you literally could not live without. You know, and and if this sounds extreme, well, it, it's not really, um, because all it takes is just um, it could be any number of reasons why the trucks no longer run to Walmart. You know, what if diesel gas is hitting twenty dollars a gallon and the trucks shut down? Now, 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 what you going to do? Yeah, well, it doesn't you know? sound extreme at all to this audience, Tom. I mean, you're you're in, you're in your home court here, so to speak, and I mean that's why I think that like the two best plays I see for people right now. Um, for this from a pure financial standpoint are paid for productive real estate. I don't mean productive because you're renting it to somebody. I mean productive in your own life and 
gold or silver as commodities. And I think if you do either one solely, uh, it's all the eggs in one basket, so to speak. And if enough people do something in a certain way that, that protects them, uh, the powers that be will actually pull a, a, a runaround on us and do it another way. So I think we have to be prepared by, you know, dividing up these assets into productive things. Like you said, skills, uh, food, food production, uh, land, all of these things have to be, and I know some people are out there thinking, thinking right now, dude, I only have so much money. And I, I think, well, that means you have to be creative and you have to do as much of it as you can with what you have. Yeah, or, or um, an, an important trade. Um, you know, maybe, maybe, um, maybe, maybe you learn how to, um, uh, put in a hand pump, uh, for subdivisions where people are on a, on a well. That, that describes me. I'm in a subdivision, uh, outside of New Orleans. Believe it or not, they're building new houses, even new construction, still on well inceptive. Well, uh, when the power grid goes down, people are going to need hand pumps, okay? So maybe I learn how to do that. That's just one example. Maybe I don't have money, but I learned a skill that I had never even thought of before. So be creative and be thoughtful, but there's there's another thing you got to be prepared to do, and I'm not advocating it because I would never advocate anybody breaking the law. But what happens when they criminalize holding silver and gold and hoarding food? Because, you know, in 33, when FDR made everybody sell their gold to the, the Federal Reserve, he did it again under the Trading with the Enemy Act, and he used the term hoarding. You cannot hoard gold. Well, what if you just wanted to, like, have it for a little while? They didn't care about that. They were they accused everybody. If you even had it, they accused you of hoarding it. That's why you had to turn in. What happens when they say, oh, nobody is allowed to have more than 50 pounds of rice? And if that sounds crazy, well, they've confiscated the gold before. Why wouldn't they do it with food? And so I would say, and I'm not advocating it, that if you are planning on long-term food storage and extra ammunition, and extra gold and extra silver, you better be prepared to break the law at some point because a lot of people are not going to want to turn their stuff in. So you better be prepared to be a felon. As sad as that sound. No, and I, I, I think if we get to that point, then I think it's, you know, I'll, right now I'm not advocating a, a breaking the law either, but I think if we get to that point, I, I do. I think it's incumbent upon us as a people at that point to say, um, to, to hear thou have come and, and no further. Um, and I think that line in the sand for me happened a long time ago, but I think there's a point where the American people have to collectively do this. And FDR did a lot of crap like that. There was a, I don't remember the exact case, but there was a farmer that wanted to uh, grow wheat or not, not sell his wheat was the thing. He didn't want to sell his wheat. He wanted to grow it and use it for his own livestock. And they said, you have to sell your wheat, and then if you want some for your livestock, you have to buy it back. And he said, and that was part of this, this stuff being done at the federal level, and he said, no, I, I'm in this state, and I don't remember what, I think it was Indiana or something like that, and I, I'm not selling it inside or outside of Indiana because it's not being sold at all, so it doesn't, you know, federal commerce does not apply, it's not in between the states, so go away. And he lost that case at the Supreme Court. Yeah, that's absolutely true. They, they, you know what they said? They said because by not selling it, you are impacting interstate commerce by not selling it, yeah. impacting everybody else. So they will do anything. They, they, will call, they will call people an enemy of the state like FDR did. They'll say that you're impacting interstate commerce by not selling yourself. They'll do anything to reach the means that they want. It is, it's absolutely thuggish and criminal, but they've done it before. And get this, FDR's hailed as a hero. Correct. You know, when you look at, He's considered one of our greatest presidents of all time. 
always listed as like the number two or number three greatest president of all time, and look what he did. And so, I mean, does anybody really think that the current president is not capable of doing that kind of stuff? In fact, I'll tell you this on FDR. I believe that there are more people today who are Democrats because of FDR than any other reason. And the way it works is your granddaddy was a Democrat because of FDR, so your daddy was, so you are. And people come up with, and they don't even really know why they gravitate to one party or the other. And this is not sticking up for the Republicans because I have my own axe to grind with, with both sides of them. I'm just saying that most of the people today that are Democrats aren't Democrats because they woke up one day and said, well, what am I? They, they're Democrats or Republicans because they came up in a household with a predisposition that way, and the, the large predisposition, the absolute monopoly on the Congress for decades by the Democratic Party, to me, all goes back to FDR, who did more to damage this nation than any other president we've ever had, as far as I'm concerned, anyway. Now, I agree. Now, here's where it gets interesting, though, is look when they, they passed the amendment, I forget even which number it was, but the one that term-limited presidents to two terms. They passed that right on the heels of FDR, and that was the Democratic Congress. Yeah. So yeah. are we to believe that it was really that popular at the time? He's being hailed, well, my point was he's being hailed as a hero now. Correct. Right? But then I don't think that wasn't so much um, because they, they, they term limited presidents right after that, and it was the Democratic Congress who did it. Now, but, but what I fear is that uh, when the current president is going to say that there's a national emergency, um, He's got a lot of people who are going to, um, they're going to be their, their eyes and ears. Oh, children um, at school, do you, um, they'll ask the kids, do your mommy and daddy have, um, have uh, too much food in their pantry? Make sure you tell your teacher that's not fair. You know, that's why, that's why Sally down the street, doesn't, her family doesn't have enough food because your parents are hoarding food. You know, that, that's where I'm afraid we're headed. You know, and I think it's important at this time that I make a, a really uh, clear distinction between uh, what is and what is not hoarding. When you go out during a time where everything's available and you use a surplus to put up reserves for yourself, that is not hoarding. Hoarding is what happens when nobody does this in the first place and then a hurricane or some other type of emergency comes in and people run out and it's going to be a three-day emergency. We pretty much know that. We can look at the timeline of the ice storm or whatever and people buy six weeks worth of crap all at once and surge the market. That's hoarding, but the government turns around and points to the people that actually do the most to, to, uh, to suppress hoarding and calls us hoarders. Yes, of course, and turn you into a felon. You know, it's, it's more than, uh, it's, it, it, it's one thing to do it to gold. It's another thing to do it to, to food and to ammo. Food, and yeah. again, I just, so much precedent, I just don't see why he wouldn't do it. Yeah, well, and here's here's the big thing I, I, I caution people with, though. When anybody looks at Obama, and trust me, I am no fan, and says, well, with this president, we could. It's important that you understand that that statement in itself is is dangerous, because with any president, we could. And any president probably will, given the right circumstances. The reason that the Constitution exists wasn't to establish the offices of the president and the Congress. That's that's kind of its secondary goal. The basic reason that we had a Constitution was to limit what those people could freaking do and to put checks and balances on each other. You look at FDR, you brought him up. One of the things about him that, I mean, alone should just make him a disgrace is when he wasn't getting decisions he wanted out of the Supreme Court, he threatened to appoint more judges. 
I don't know what gave anybody the authority to do that. Today we have a, you know, we can't get a judge through Congress over, uh, you know, piddly things that's just not even a Supreme Court justice, just a, a district judge or something, a district, district federal judge. And, and this guy says, you know what? Okay, we can have nine justices. And then the Supreme Court starts yielding and giving him his way. Um, so anybody that thinks we can't go down these paths just needs to take a look at history. You know, you can go back to uh, the 19, like around 1919, 1920, somewhere in there. Uh, Woodrow Wilson rounded people up and put them in camps. We weren't even at war. Yeah, it, well, and I'm glad you, you did. Uh, you, um, you reminded me because I should have made that point myself. It's not just this president because we we put so much power into the hands of Washington or or, or allow them to steal the power. We haven't given it to them. They just seized it. Um, and it just, uh, it just comes to accept it. That, uh, it comes down to we need to educate future generations so they don't continue to accept it because it's just become a way of life. Oh, the president's, the president said we have to do something or Washington voted on this or the Supreme Court said that. And they don't even care what the Constitution says. And remember, most, most people, most congressmen, um, have no idea what's in the Constitution. Most citizens probably don't know what's in the Constitution. And so when they pull these things, people don't even know that it's illegal and, and that their rights are being stolen from them. Uh, they don't see the dangers. And so, yeah, what, what happens is, okay, maybe you're a Republican now and you can't believe what Obama's doing, but guess what? You love your Republican presidents to have all so much power, so why are you so shocked when this guy's doing stuff you don't like? And the Democrats shouldn't be shocked when the next Republican comes in and does stuff they don't like. What we need to do is bring the power back so they got to stop doing all this stuff that's dangerous to the people. And, you know, Ron Paul has said that. He goes, he, somebody says, that's what he do first thing in office. He goes, well, the first thing I'd do is I'd take a cut and take it so I wouldn't have that much to do. <laughs> yeah. He, just, he, just, yeah. he presides. That's what he calls the president. He presides over the government, yeah. not society. Correct. And we, and we as the people, we've, we've seated um, society... Washington, D.C. How can we do that? Uh, you know, it, it mystifies me, but I think you brought up something very important, and it's important that everybody out there, you be educating your children to, to true American history, to, to true constitutional history, and don't think they won't be interested. If you bring it to their level, they will. And I think this will probably send a, a, a slice of terror through any, any government bureaucrat out there today or politician uh, if everybody would do this. The two most important things you need to teach your children today about the Constitution are the two amendments that no one almost ever talks about, and that would be the Ninth and the Tenth Amendments of the Constitution because they were the ones that basically said, if we, don't, we didn't say the people can't do something, doesn't mean, or if we didn't give the people a right, uh, it doesn't mean they don't have the right. These are just the things we're making sure you don't screw with. And then the Tenth Amendment was, just in case you didn't understand, right? If we don't give you a power here, you don't have it. It goes to the, to the states and then down to the people. Yes. Uh, but you know what? Uh, if, you, um, if you even talk about the Tenth Amendment, um, you're a right-wing extremist. You're a racist. I mean, they, yeah, you're racist, too. Don't forget that. It's racist. To believe that the individual is sovereign, which I find absolutely, completely asinine because the individual having sovereignty, and I'm not talking about this, you know, I don't have to play by the rules sovereign citizen movement. I'm talking about the sovereignty of our nation lies in the individual. The individual has the greatest power. The individual chooses what power to hand over to a local government, to a state government, and to a federal government. With the greatest power supposed to exist closest to the person. 
Now, how that can be twisted to it being extremist or being racist, I don't know. But uh, I don't know if you've ever seen Interview with a Zombie. Uh, from <laughs> I love interviewing the Isn't it one, I'm going to have to put that in today's show notes. It's one of the greatest things in the world. I, I don't remember the author's name, but he's not talking about his book, and the zombie just points at it and it's like, racism. Yeah, that's, that's Tom Woods. That's it. And I, I think he's even set up a website, interviewwithazombie.com. Correct. Tom Woods is brilliant. Absolutely. And that's, that's how things get played. I think we're, we're kind of wrapping up the end of the hour here. Um, and, uh, man, it was a great interview having you on to talk about all this stuff. I hope people have a better understanding of it now. You got any final thoughts for, you know, what people should be doing? Uh, I mean, I think you and I are in agreement that I can't tell you when, but this thing is going to, to fall. And yeah, when, what do we do between yeah. now and then, and what do we do a- immediately afterward? Well, um, again, you can speak to that a lot better than I can. That's absolutely your baby um, as far as preparing for this stuff. But primarily, um, uh Food um, that will last a long time. Um, silver, gold's just too expensive, but you can always get some junk silver because um, you're going to be needing that to trade with, and they'll probably make it illegal. But you're going to have to be prepared to trade with that. Um, and a good set of tools, a good set of skills, but also um, I really do think, and I've been saying this for a long time, and it's really starting, I believe, to play out. And that is that that. Money and an understanding of what money really is, not these ridiculous Federal Reserve notes, but real money, what real money is. If you um, understand that, well, I should say if you don't understand that, um, there's really not much hope for society. Society in general doesn't understand it and demand a, um, a return to sound money. Because, you know, if you, um, if you leave this system in place that we have, you will never cure any of our woes with the, with the country's debt and all that. Ever, no matter who you send to Washington, if they have a system in place that they can't abuse, they will abuse it. On the other hand, if you get rid of this Federal Reserve fiat system and have sound money, it almost doesn't matter who goes to Washington. They can't spend you into oblivion. So Correct. I, just, I, I implore people, make the money issue your issue. It is the most important one. If you fix that, a lot of the other problems uh, will take care of themselves. I completely agree, and I think that this nation has plenty of resources. And my wife keeps saying, well, what does it mean when a nation or a city or a county goes bankrupt? They don't close the doors. And she's right, they don't close the doors. But what they do is they use the crisis to advance an agenda. And I, I, I'm afraid that's what we're looking at here. And I want people to be prepared as possible. And uh, I think that you've given people some real clarity into the past so they can have a better understanding of the future, Tom. So thanks for uh, thanks for joining us today. All right, thank you, Jack, and I would just ask everybody to check us out at baldyandtheblonde.com, and our show does stream live over the Internet. Yep, again, that's baldyandtheblonde.com, and the station, if you happen to be in New Orleans, WGSO 990 AM, uh, Wednesdays from 5 to 6, you can uh, listen to them live on the radio or listen to their streaming uh, and, and past shows, right? You guys have your past shows up on your website as well. Uh, yeah, we have all of our previous shows, and we've been so fortunate to have just a stellar list of guests. We've had Rand Paul, we've had Ron Paul, uh, Jesse Ventura, uh, Peter Schiff, G. Edward Griffin, uh, uh, Craig Roberts. We've, uh, we've had a, a lot of uh, very high-profile people, have been, uh, and you've come on, I believe, three times. Correct. Uh, and uh, we've, in fact, we've set up our own uh, Jack Spearco page. You're so popular um, on our site. And by the way, I would love to have you back again sometime. I'll get with uh, Michelle, my co-host. We'll figure out a, um, 
what we have coming up. But you're welcome on anytime. Hey, anytime you guys want me, I'm happy to be there. Love what you guys are doing. And folks, make sure you check out baldyandtheblonde.com. With that, I am going to wrap up today. I hope that we've given you some clarity and some insight into some things that seem confusing. They're really not. It's just a shell game, uh, and we are the mark. And it's up to us to uh, to know that. And it's real easy to not be a mark when you know you're the mark in the first place. It's real easy not to lose at uh, three-card money. You just don't play that game. You put your money in your pocket. You walk down the boardwalk. This is a little more complicated, but it's really not a lot more complicated. You can look around you today, and you know what things actually have value. You know what things people will work for, what what things people will want if, if things fail. That's When you say, where do I put my money? You folks, you got to tailor that to your personal life with your own risk tolerance and your own needs and your own resources. But I can give you the answer. Put it where value lies. And it's easy to see that. Look at a situation where things fall apart and look for the, th- the very first things people go to and try to find. That's where your money belongs. With that, this has been Jack Spirico today along with Tom Coetz, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Seen our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way. Revolution is